Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. I'm Russell Brand and on this week's episode I will be speaking to Reza Aslan. Reza is an internationally renowned scholar of religion and writer whose books include the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, and No God But God, The Origins, Evolution and Future of Islam. Guess who we spoke to last week? It was Brené Brown. Brené Brown, texture like sun. Oh, I love Brené Brown. I'm a bit obsessed with Brené Brown. Are you obsessed with Brené Brown? Oh, dear Brené Brown. Brené, Brené, Brené Brown. Here are some of your comments on Brené Brown because you enjoy Brené Brown too. Hold on though, but before we get into that, here's a bit of personal promo. Check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and clips from the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get notified for new videos. We want you subscribed. There's five new videos every week and also get mentors and also watch Rebirth on Netflix. If you want to get in touch with us, go find me at Rusty Rockets uh, on Twitter and use the hashtag under the skin and on Instagram at True Russell Brown. Now let's have a look at these comments. Babs X said, listening to you both is like eating a five-star meal. It fed my soul. Thank you. Miranda Hart, a.k.a. Miranda, said, this episode has some vital and inspiring moments and revelations. Blown away, encouraged, inspired, and laughed along the way. Thank you. I love Miranda Hart. If you don't know who she is, because perhaps you're American or Icelandic or something, find out. She's wonderful. Susan Azim Boyer. Brené Brown was bloody brilliant. A lot of people going for alliteration. Her advice on choice and firm boundaries in parenting, life-changing. No more chocolate bribes for Mabel, Russell. I'm telling you now, I've been parenting my ass off. Really, I have. I'm using that choice method. Mabel, it's up to you. There's a choice for you to make here. Either you can shut up or I'm going to call the UN because much of your treatment of your hostage has breached the Geneva Convention. We are releasing all of your hostages. Kathleen Hamilton. I thought I was in love with at Rusty Rockets and at Brenny Brown before, but after the most recent episode of Under the Skin, I'm totally melted. So much to digest. This is going to be a multiple listener, no doubt. Tell your friends, guys. Get them subscribed. And remember, every time you get someone to subscribe to Luminary, that means that they will have subscribed to Luminary as well. Now... Enough hype, enough rhubarb and nonsense. Me and Reza Aslan get well into it with God. One of my about God. One of my favourite bits is where we talk about Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha, and we talk about are there comparables, and we sort of talk about did the institutions that followed them behave in a comparable way? Meaning, and the answer was yes to both questions, and it suggests to me that when the divine message comes through, it gets institutionalised and materialised. Not materialised as in manifest. I mean turned into a materialistic ideology anyway so that's a really good bit that you'll like he's also a lovely lovely man Reservoir land and i think he's well-intentioned damn decent chap so i hope you enjoy it stay close to us remember how much we love you i'll see you on the other side trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route yes that's 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 exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Reza, thank you for coming to talk to me on Under the Skin. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I thought the first thing I'd like to ask you about 
it's um, it's not a question, but it is in, in, interrogative. You will definitely. It's not one of those things that's just a statement. <laughs> uh, like I think about that James Baldwin quote that the sort of dominant culture had to create the category of Negro in order to disavow and disown its own shadow. I was thinking that in relation to Edward Said's work in Orientalism, and I was wondering how you think these ideas are playing out now in these sort of times of media cataclysm. What do you think is happening in what you refer to as a sort of cosmic war, kind of an ideological war? I mean, I think all you have to do is look at the the world right now to recognize that we're under the grip of some kind of massive global identity crisis. I think part of this has to do with globalization. I mean, Mm. whatever else globalization is, you know, yes, it's an economic term and yes, it's about new communication technologies and mass migration and all of that stuff. However else you want to define it, it's fundamentally changed the way that we think about ourselves and the world, right? We don't we don't imagine the planet that we used to, the way that we used to even 20 years ago. Certainly you can say that the entire philosophy of the 20th century, which was based on the idea of nationalism, right? If if we can all just learn to put away uh, the other forms of identity that we have, our ethnicity, our race, our religion, and instead come together as free and equal citizens of a secular nation state bound by some geographical borders that probably somebody else made, by the way, some other you know outsider created for us, that if we could just do that, then all the the wars and the conflicts that you know have have raged in human history for so many years they'll all go away and we'll have peace and prosperity so how did that work out for for everyone i mean you're talking about a century that was unquestionably the bloodiest most violent century in human history a century that resulted in the death of tens of millions of people not in the name of race not in the name of religion, but in the name of nationalism. And so now that nationalism or national identity seems to no longer hold as much sway, I think people are doing two things. Number one, they're reverting to more primal forms of identity, right? They're going back to ethnicity, race, religion. That it's You're more likely today to define yourself first and foremost as a Christian and then an American, first and foremost as a Muslim and then an Egyptian, first and foremost as a Jew and then an Israeli, than you were even a couple of decades ago. I think that's the first change. And then the second change is, to your point, we're doing the thing that human beings have always done, which is define ourselves in opposition to another. Right? It's very, very difficult to say what it means to be British right now, but you can say what it means not to be British. <laughs> it's hard to say what it means to be American, but you can say you know, what it doesn't mean to be American. All you got to do is just find some internal group that either doesn't look like you or doesn't talk like you or doesn't pray like you, and then use them as this opposite pole to say, well, what it means to be us is to not be them. And this has just gripped the planet, not just in America, not just in the UK, but look at India, look at Russia, look at Turkey, uh, look at uh, Indonesia, look at 
um, Israel and all of these countries, the reason why authoritarianism seems to be on the rise is that there's a guy who says, oh, I know why you all feel unmoored. I know why you're looking around and your neighborhood doesn't look the way it used to. The world doesn't look the way it used to. I know why you're struggling to, to ident- identify yourself. It's because of the Mexicans. It's because of the Muslims. It's because of the Pakistanis. It's because of whatever. And it, that's always been a powerful message. It's always been how we define ourselves. And it's now suddenly resurging and with catastrophic consequences. Accompanied also in some quarters, at least uh, in terms of um, what is sort of reported in the way that arguments are defined by a kind of resurgent ethno-nationalism that sort of feels traditionalist and, yeah, mm-hmm. and of course, as the term suggests, somewhat racially motivated. It makes me wonder, Reza, why there isn't a... Okay, when religious orthodoxy seemed all-powerful and many of the aged ideas of the desert books no longer were in keeping with modern culture, there was, of course, the rise of um, new atheism, like uh, powerful attacks on these institutions motivated by the kind of reiteration of where religion was no longer relevant and helpful. Are you surprised that there isn't a comparable movement attacking national sovereignty, the idea of the state? Do you think that there is, but it's more subversive and dominated by uh, globalist forces, I mean uh, corporate forces? Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, is it possible that the breakdown of the state could be a good thing if it wasn't immediately replaced by some sort of global corporatism, but rather by a sort of tribalized society where centralized power itself was challenged, whether corporate or state? Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, a couple of decades ago, most people who think about these kinds of things would say, yeah, of course it's a good thing. Uh, look at the European Union. 27 different countries or something like that, nearly 30 different countries, something like a dozen different languages, uh, but a single birth certificate, a single passport, a single currency. When you think about that in a vacuum, it sounds miraculous. It sounds amazing. It sounds like it's the future that we all want, right? Let's just, let's come together based on shared values and ideas, not based on these arbitrary and sometimes fabricated borders that sort of separate us into into us and them. Um, Now you ask that question and it's not in a vacuum it's it's reality right it what we're what we're facing is individuals who on the one hand feel either left behind by the promises of globalization or as i say are just feeling um unmoored by it like they they can't they can't define themselves either individually or more importantly uh, as a collective any longer while on the flip side people like me who are still talking about the glories of globalization and this post-nationalist future that is on the horizon, first we sound like morons because all you have to do is look around and realize it hasn't turned out the way that, that you know we all thought that it was going to. And second, we just get immediately tagged by this label of elitist or out of touch or worse, at least for me, worse as not globalists but corporatists because you don't 
it, you know, you don't have to be a genius to realize that the vacuum that is that is there, you know, in this sort of this whole identity vacuum that we're talking about is is going to be filled by corporations that it's going to be, you know, Facebook and Google and uh, and, you know, Citibank that that is actually going to unite us, that what's going to connect me to some kid in Indonesia is not necessarily the values that we share in common, but the fact that we're both slaves to the same communication technology. Um, you know, look, th- isn't this always the case that, you know, theory meets reality and, and the, the consequences of it at the human level are stuff that we rarely think about? I'm guilty of that. But at the same time, I'm a believer in the progress of human societies. At the same time, I don't see how we roll back the tide of globalization. How do we stop this? How do we stop mass migration? We can pretend we're going to build ball- walls, but we're not going to, and it's not going to work anyway. So I'm less concerned about, um, you know, will will globalization stop or will we snap back into some kind of, you know, I don't know, pre-globalized uh, identity where we're all building walls around each other and becoming smaller and smaller groups or or anything like that, I'm more concerned about how do we address the very legitimate grievances of those people who feel left behind. Yes. These walls, I was thinking, just as you were talking, feel like to me like the physicalization of a felt metaphor of not being boundaries and, as you were saying, unmoored and having lost your identity. And perhaps it will seem sort of even 10, 15 years down the line, you know, like we may glance back at articles where Facebook are announcing they're going to start a currency as, oh, they're basically a country now. (laughs) Without borders. Yeah, right. Without borders or without limitation. I think the word for that is empire. Empire. And it makes me think too, Reza, that like even like sort of like earlier in the adventure of the nation state, they were already allied to corporate forces in the form of colonialism. In a sense, the state was always the military arm of uh, corporate interest, British colonialism, right. for example. The East so, India Tea Company, you know, yeah. So maybe like not that much has changed. And so like our own allegiance to the, our forged allegiance to the state, to nation, to land, to country, is a sort of an odd transposition of tribalism it doesn't sit well and it can't sit long the idea i think about uh, a lot and i'd like to have it um examined by someone who understands it better than i do like that that you know like that it's possibly a time to consider like i like when i think about i the post-Brexit and post-Trump, the thing that's concerned me most has been the rhetoric of the inverted commas left in the ongoing condemnation of people that would vote for Brexit, vote for Trump, and they're not and a lack of willingness to understand the conditions that of yeah, the grievance, the legitimacy of the grievance. My, I wonder, in uh, like, I wonder if there is to be, you know, if we are really progressing, but perhaps we have to look at different types of narrative and what progression really means there's an assumption that progression means a sort of a a, a move towards liberalism a move towards technological and scientific advance um i wonder if pro you know like a word even like progress could be regarded 
differently and and this is where i suppose i'd like to can talk about uh, the religious component uh, of your work and what role spirituality might play in a a, a meaningful progress because surely progress must mean more human beings more happy with better opportunity happier lives yeah it's it's a loaded word there's no question about it i mean you know i guess if i were to have to define what i mean by progress um i would define it by the coming together of human communities the 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 um the sort of intermixing of human co- communities beyond the traditional um collective identities that have divided us you know for millennia right whether that those identities are religious or whether they're racial or whether they're um ethnic or nationalistic and so in a sense when i say i i can see this kind of this road this movement towards progress um that's really what i mean i mean just just think about this this incredible fact right so from the dawn of human history until about 20 years ago the very definition of community meant the people around you like literally the people around you whether those people were in your cave or whether they were in your hut or whether they were in your village or your uh, tribe or your city or your state or your nation the entire definition of the word community was geographically bound and yet what the internet has done what these sort of new communication technologies has done is it's fundamentally changed the very definition of community there's a kid in los angeles who probably has more in common with a kid in jakarta because they love the same music or that they they love the same movies or they see the world in the same way than either of those kids has in common with anyone in their actual community and while you while that presents to me at least this incredible promise right of a future in which we are linking with each other be you know outside of the traditional ways that we've used to you know you have the same skin color as me you pray to the same god as me so therefore you're me um and instead about these other ways of thinking other ways of forming identities at the same time it scares the shit out of a lot of people obviously it scares the shit out of a lot of people what you're seeing right now is kind of like the rubber band snapping back if you will i guess the only argument that I'm making, and I have no, no idea whether I'm right about this or not, is that this snapback is temporary, that it's a reaction. It's not a it's not an independent thing. Right. That it's that it, that it won't last, that it's the last gasp, if you will, of an older way of thinking being confronted with a new reality that isn't going anywhere. Jesus, I hope I'm right. I mean, I. I would like to think that my kids are going to grow up in a different world than I grew up in. Yes. 
there's no question i suppose that they will in to some degree (laughs) um, if there is a world the the problem being of course that those uh, that that uh, interconnectivity um between the jakarta kid and the la kid is mediated and undergirded by uh, commerce and corporation they can't communicate other than in the space owned by the facebook (laughs) empire or some proxy or affiliate thereof um this is why like because in a way, what I feel like when I listen to you know, when I listen to you is it's like almost that something is trying to be born and, and something is clearly dying. It's like we can't, how can we continue to identify as our I'm English or America, whatever it is that we are, when those forms of categorization become increasingly redundant while we're all aware. Like I'm doing one thing that's fascinating about this job is it's mostly African American cast and African a large African American right. crew, so I'm spending more. I'm English, so I don't spend any time around African uh, American people, you know, like at all. So, like, so while I'm doing this job, I like uh, see, like, uh, one kid in particular. I'm thinking of like that. How, uh, when you listen to him, how low down the list of things that are interesting about him, his racial identity is, and how sort of, hmm. sort of, almost. Uh, It'd be like it's kind of willfully difficult to sort of impose. This is an African because he seems like he's a mercurial, intellectual, curious. <laughs> There's so many things, you know. And I was thinking how, right, you know, like this creation of these categories and the promotion of these categories is significant. Is obviously one way that power can conserve itself, and. Uh, I feel that, you know, the, the the argument of the left is always that there needs to be some sort of centralised force to, to prevent the forces of corporate power. Like when I'm saying to sort of like when I talk to Marxists about mm-hmm. like no centralised force is ever going to really be, it, never going to operate truly in the interest of the people because, you know, like you know, we've seen the problems of the last century with that regard. Um, so... Like what I'm curious about is how uh, re- not religious identity, but the sort of perennial principles found throughout religion could be used to sort of find ways that bind together people of, uh, from varying from various communities, and in fact help us all to see uh, what we have in common beyond the increasingly redundant forms of taxonomy such as nation race and even conventional religious ideology i wonder how willing people will be to put aside those forms of identification if if new systems begin to emerge that are better at doing the job of making human being human and more all bearable i mean this this is the heart of everything that i think about and struggle with and and talk about and try to make sense of um i mean it's complicated because on the one hand there is no more quintessential identity uh, forming mechanism than religion, right? I mean, religion is all about in groups and out groups. It's all about who is us and who is them. Um, it, and it, it, go ahead. Is it that? Why do you say that? Why is that? Do you mean particularly monotheism, or do you mean particularly Hinduism? Because it literally means them across the river, or whatever. It is. <laughs> like, what, what? What? Why is that? Well. First, I think I would say one very, very important thing, which is always important in these conversations, which is to separate religion from faith or spirituality, or or as I like to call it, the religious impulse, right? Religion is a man-made 
institution. I mean that quite literally as in people with penises. It's a man-made institution, the purpose of which is to control a emotion slash experience that is fundamental to the human condition, and that's faith. The one thing that I've been really working on over the last five, six, seven years is I've been very interested in this idea of origins, right? Where did where did God? Where did the idea of God come from? Where did the, where did how did religions arise anyway? Uh, wh- you know, where did all this where did all this come from? Um, and what I've discovered, which is I think truly fascinating, it was actually a surprise even to myself, and I've been dealing with these questions for a very long time, is that what we call in our modern parlance faith, right? The the belief in that which is other, the the desire to experience transcendence, right? The conviction that there is more to reality than just the material realm, that this isn't it, right? That that impulse predates our species. It predates Homo sapiens. Cool. And how do you, how the hell can we know this? So <clears throat> the easiest way is that we have a ton of material evidence. Um, we have obviously, uh, you know, uh, temples, we have icons, we have those kinds of things. But the most obvious and unambiguous material evidence that we have is burials. I mean, when we find a burial, uh, like a Paleolithic era burial uh, or, you know, a burial of a Homo erectus or a Neanderthal, it's quite clear what is happening there. I mean, the ceremonial evidence is before our eyes. Here we have bodies that are buried in unquestionably ritualistic fashion, bodies that are buried with trinkets, toys, weapons, things that were precious to the individual when that individual was alive, um, and things that they that individual might need for whatever happens next. So, there are a hundred different nuances to the interpretation of how we deal with these kinds of findings, but fundamentally, what is what everyone agrees with, what there is total consensus on, is that whoever buried this person thought that this wasn't it, that this kept going, that whatever the, whatever we are, the, there is a material part of us that stops, but then there is this other part of us. This, this vital essence, let's just call it soul, if you will. That belief in the soul, we have material evidence going back hundreds of thousands of years for that, that indicate a, a belief in the soul. The real question that we are only now starting to grapple with is why? Why do we believe this? Like what, is, what is it about human beings? And more to the point, if you're a reasonable, rationalist, scientifically-minded person like I am. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> deeply, deeply so. Um, then, then the question becomes, well, then there must be some kind of reason Rational. for it. There must be some adaptive advantage to it. You know, if this, is a, if this is a thing that is, number one, universal, which it is, that predates our species, which it does, and that is fundamentally like inherent to the the experience of homo sapiens then there must be some kind of evolutionary reason for it and so for two centuries we've been trying to figure out what the hell that evolutionary reason is why do we believe these things and without getting into the weeds of it the answer is we have no idea 
there is no adaptive advantage to to this belief. In fact, the one thing that we all pretty much agree on now is that it's a disadvantage that the time and effort and energy and resources that our Paleolithic ancestors put to those kinds of burials or the sacrifices or all of those things, they should have been spent on surviving, not on those things. So why why do we do it? Ceremony and ritual necessarily and by definition is an attempt to interact with the unseen world. It's a way of physicalizing the unknowable and like a uh, from, from the advent of language onwards we're dealing with uh, sort of meta and uh, and symbolic forms of communication it could be argued of course all forms of communication that require right. <laughs> yeah. that um, I was thinking and reading lately about the idea of uh, the sort of in hunter-gatherer societies the, uh, the, 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 the function of sacrifice is the to mediate the relationship between appetite and intelligence and and in a sense that even the awareness of a future the awareness of a of a being in time because i don't consider myself to be a rationalist a materialist person i consider myself to be someone who's trying desperately to open gateways in my own consciousness to non-local and impersonal uh, intelligence where, where, wherever possible and Christ alone knows or well, not alone but among others would be able to tell us um so like I can envisage or guess or and indeed have read that the function of ritual and sacrifices uh, to is the acknowledgement that you know in order to if we can control appetites now we can relate potentially to the future. I've heard it said by I think sort of some first century Christian analysis. It's uh, the future is as if there was a father, a kind of abiding father that has to be honoured, that we have to somehow embody and become the father of ourselves in order to safeguard our future. And that, for me, uh, ties into some of the stuff that Yuval Noah Harari says about sort of like mm-hmm. our ability to tell stories, stories of tribes, stories of nations, mm-hmm. stories of community, in that uh, if you can forego an impulse, uh, uh, an appetite, in fact, uh, in order that it may be better for the future, that that's in a sense, does have a, a, an evolutionary advantage to not sort of fall hopelessly upon a, 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 a hunted animal, but to think, no, we we can spare and sacrifice some of this because it creates a sense of community. It's not rational and material, I suppose, not immediately rational and material. I suppose it sort of suggests foresight. It suggests an understanding of the future. It suggests the idea of a third presence. The other thing I was saying, like thinking while you were talking, is all of us have pre-sensory experience in our own lifetime. We all know what it's like. We all, on one level, know what it's like to be a baby prior to the, but prior to the senses kicking in. We all know what it's like to have dreams. We all, like, we almost have to be trained to uh, tether our consciousness to material and sensual information. We all know that there's unknowable information continually about us that's not limited by our ability to measure it. Well, to that point, as a matter of fact, we now have data proving that. Um, in fact, Justin Barrett, who is, a, I guess he calls himself a cognitive psychologist, um, did a, a series of uh, studies with children all over the world, different cultures. Some, some grew up in religious traditions. Some did not grow up in religious traditions. I think all of them were like under five or something. And what he discovered was that we are essentially born with 
an innate conception of what is sometimes referred to as substance dualism, what you're talking about, the idea that the, the mind and matter are sort of separate, that there is a that there is an experience of you that is outside of and un, and not limited by the the material that you are. Again, I'm just going to use this word soul, which is anachronistic, but people get it when, when you say the word soul. Um, we're born with that belief, that that's a belief that you have to actually unlearn is extraordinary, extraordinary to me. And I think it's linked to this larger question of why, because look, you brought up sacrifice, which is a very, very important point. You, yeah, what you're talking about is sometimes referred to as kind of uh, the shorthand for it is like the mitigation of violence, whatever, in, in, in any sense, like that we that by by enacting that violence on a uh, on a thing, whether that thing is willing or not. Yes, you you um, maintain peace among the tribe you you sort of satisfy your own violent impulses you satisfy the desire for that thing that's coming um and it's just about the this this belief that human societies left to their own devices would disintegrate into violence unless there's some kind of uh force that mitigates that and sacrifice is a great force for that but of course again homo erectus didn't take part in sacrifices. Neanderthals didn't take part in sacrifices. You know, the, the idea of ceremonial sacrifice is, in the larger view of things, a fairly recent phenomenon. In other words, it's a symptom of whatever makes us believe. It's not the thing that makes us believe. Fundamentally, whatever, whatever we are, we are homo religiosus you know what i mean like it's whether whether you're a, a a diehard atheist or whether you are a you know devout believer the fact of the matter is is that we have to come to at least this one uh consensus which is that the 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 spiritual experience the religious impulse faith all the words that we have for it fundamentally resides in our brain it's fundamentally the result of whatever chemical reactions are taking place in our brain. That doesn't delegitimize it. My problem with the new atheists is, is that they believe that that delegitimizes it. Aha! I found, I found the place in your brain that I can poke and make you have a religious experience. Therefore, the religious experience isn't real. Okay, well, I know the place in my brain that makes me love. That doesn't make love any less real. It doesn't make the person that I love any less worthy of that love. Of course it resides in my brain. Where else would it reside? Everything resides in my brain. So why wouldn't faith, why wouldn't my experience of the divine or transcendence also reside in the brain? But my only argument is that if that's true, if that's where it resides, then it's just fundamentally a part of who we are. It's how we're we're built. It's it's how we're meant to think. Also, it suffers from the same problem that most materialist arguments will ultimately fall prey to: that you are only able to measure what you're able to measure, and it's inconceivable that there aren't subtler forces or forces that are difficult for us to measure, recognize, categorize with the limitations Which of our sensory instruments. It's a shockingly naive argument for 
seemingly intelligent, scientific-minded people to make. Precisely because it's the scientific method as revealed. All right, these are the smallest particles. No, these are the smallest yeah, particles. Yeah. No, these no, are the these smallest. Are. No, this is definitely <laughs> yeah. the end. This. Oh no, the, yeah. these are. The, no, this is definitely the. It's end. It's why I don't. I I never use words like um, supernatural. You know, it's like, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, what we know is natural changes every day. So you may think, oh, you know, ESP and uh, spiritual experiences, out of body, you know, experiences. Those are bunk because they're supernatural. Okay, well, how do you know that this isn't just how we are, that what we, this is what we are capable of doing and only a few of us can do it. And that eventually we'll all be able to do it. Eventually, all of these sort of questions and answers about mind-body dualism will all make sense when we realize that fundamentally we are built this way. And some of us are tapped into it more than others. You've had a bit of a weird life, ain't you, mate? Being sort of a, like, a, what is it that your family fled from the Iranian yeah, yeah, revolution we, yeah, and you yeah. sort of grew up? What Tell us more about that. And you've had a, quite an unusual history of your own personal faith. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I was born in Iran. My family left in 1979 when the, when the revolution happened. I didn't come from a particularly religious family, actually. But, you know, I think my dad, who was a Marxist, uh, looked around at all these turbaned, bearded men who were promising that, oh, yeah, yeah once the Shah goes, we're just going to go back to our mosques and mind our own business. And he just said, bullshit. <laughs> uh, and so he thought that it would be a good idea just in case for us to to just leave town. We left everything behind and, and just left. Um, thinking that, Okay, maybe maybe it'll settle and we'll go back. And obviously, he was right, which he reminded me of on a daily basis until right he died. about that <laughs> revolution, yeah, exactly. wasn't I? So do what I tell I you now. Do what I tell you now. I was right about that. Um, and then I I came to the U.S. basically, you know, just just right as the Iran hostage crisis was happening. Um, and so, you know, even at seven years old, suddenly this whole conversation that we've been having about identifying yourself in opposition to another, I was like. That I was that other. Your culture war zelig. That's exactly <laughs> what I am. And and you know people people would look at me and you know be like go back to your country you know raghead and and I'm seven. I don't I don't know what they're talking about. Um, and again, like I said, it's not like I was all that religious to begin with. Um, but it, what it did is I think even at a very young age it did two things to me. It made me fascinated by by identity. It made me fascinated by it. This sort of like. Well, then what am I? What am I? And if you're telling me I'm not American, but then what are you and how are you defining yourself? It's just been sort of the, the, the fundamental intellectual pursuit of my entire life. What are you? How do you answer that question? Um, and then the second thing was it made me super interested in religion because, again, my dad, when we came to the United States, my dad was like, well, at least we don't have to pretend anymore. You know, like in Iran, we all had to pretend. You know, and now we don't have to pretend. So we basically, he scrubbed our lives of religion. But I had this experience of actually watching religion transform my country before my very eyes. So I was fascinated by it. And I never really had an opportunity to, to do anything about that. And then when I was in high school, a bunch of friends invited me to this um, this summer camp, which ended up being this event. It's, it was an evangelical uh, camp. And 
in the middle of like having the time of my life, I heard the gospel story for the first time. And there's a reason why it's called the greatest story ever told. It's a great story. The story of the God of heaven and earth coming down in the form of a baby, of dying for our sins, the promise that if all you have to do is believe what I just told you, all you have to do is believe that story and you will never die. Um, you will have eternal life. Um, I mean, I was 15 years old. This is what I'd been waiting for all my life. And so I converted to this very particularly conservative brand of evangelical Christianity and then went around, you know, trying to convert everybody else, uh, whether they wanted to or not. And then I did that thing, which is something I've always done, which is, okay, well, now I'm this thing. I want to know everything about it. And the more I kept learning about it, the more I kept realizing that there was this disconnect between what I was being told and what I was kind of learning on my own. And and that especially, that's really what led to uh, my book Zealot, was suddenly being confronted by the historical Jesus. Jesus the man, this, this guy, this illiterate, barefoot, uneducated, peasant, poorest of the poor, from the backwoods of Galilee, a country bumpkin, basically, who solely through the power of his charisma and his teaching launched a movement on behalf of the poor and the weak and the marginalized and the dispossessed, a movement that was seen as such a threat by the largest, most powerful empire the world had ever known that they hunted him down like a criminal and executed him for the crime of sedition against the state. If you know nothing else about Jesus but that, he sounds like the coolest guy in the world. Like, I don't know. I want to know that guy. And so... The more I got to know that guy, the more the sort of celestial Christ who has, doesn't care about this world, is only interested in the, the, the world to come, uh, became less interesting to me. And simultaneously, I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to study religion because if this story is interesting, imagine what the story of the, the historical Muhammad is like. Imagine what the story of the historical Buddha is like. And if I find it interesting and if I can figure out a way to write about it in an interesting way, other people will find it interesting. This is what I'm going to do for a living. But then simultaneous to that was this like spiritual yearning where I was like, well, I can't be a Christian anymore but I still want something. I still want to be able to express this thing. And funny thing, I, I went to a, a, a Jesuit college, a Catholic Jesuit college. And after you know anything about the Jesuits, they're troublemakers. They're, they're troublemakers. They're hardcore, but they're troublemakers, right? They're, they're very much, I mean, look, the Pope is a Jesuit, right? Everyone's like, wow, this Pope is so much different than the other Popes because he's a Jesuit. That's why. And those Jesuits basically said to me, well, why don't you look at, you know, the, the religion of your forefathers. Look at Islam again. And I knew nothing about Islam. And I started studying it. And basically I was like, oh shit, this is the stuff I believe already. I just didn't know there were words for it. Now, I should also say very clearly that when you study the religions of the world, it becomes very hard to take any one of those religions all that seriously anymore. Certainly, it becomes very hard to take any of their truth claims all that seriously anymore. Why? Because they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. Oftentimes, they're literally saying the same. They're using the same mythology. The same myths show up over and over again in different religions, separated 
by immeasurable distances in time. I mean, we don't have an answer for that, by the way. We don't know why this happens. Again, it's a, it's a function of the brain. But they're just using a different language for it. So to roll this back to where we started, the difference between faith and, and religion, faith is part of the human condition. Religion is just a language. It's just a language made up of symbols and metaphors that gives us an opportunity to express what is fundamentally inexpressible to ourselves and to other like-minded people. But if your faith is in the language, then you're doing it wrong. You said, like, you touched on and, well, concluded beautifully with the sort of perennial themes throughout major religions, which is always very comforting for me to hear. Um, But I wanted to tie that into the comparative study of central figures of the three faiths that you mentioned and to ask if you found there any patterns see with the historical christ historical muhammadan historical buddha or whatever did you notice patterns uh, from the history as such as it is ascertainable and verifiable uh, of uh, of the in these cases men and then the way that they were subsequently institutionalized that would tell us something about how uh, what that transition is from a sort of mystical figure and prophet to the institutions that spring up and often become about um, kind of cybernetics and management of power this is literally my favorite topic of conversation oh, cool <laughs> Yes. So <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about Jesus, let's talk about Muhammad, and let's talk about Buddha. So first things first, all three of them, in, 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 in neither case did either of them set out or try to start a new religion. In each case, these were people who had no other intention except to reform the religion of their of their of their land. The Buddha was not a Buddhist. The Buddha was a Hindu. He was Hindu. He had problems with Hinduism. And so he tried to reform it, specifically to find a, a middle path uh, uh, of reform. Jesus was not Christian. Jesus was a Jew. He had serious problems with the temple-focused Judaism of his time, and so he tried to reform it. Muhammad was not a Muslim. The term Islam doesn't exist in the Quran. During his lifetime, no one called themselves Muslim. They called themselves companions, you know, at best, or they called themselves Ummah, the community. That's that's basically what they called themselves. Muhammad, at no point, nowhere in the Quran, in fact, the Quran literally says, this is not a new message. This is not a new religion. It's the same message that was given to all the prophets who came before you. Their scripture is your scripture. Their religion is your religion. That's about as clear a statement as it gets that I'm not interested in starting a new religion. That's not why I'm here. I'm just here to say the way that we're doing it is wrong <laughs> and let's change it. That's all, I'm, that's all I want to do. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is every one of their, their commandments, their thoughts, their, their arguments were all economic. They were all social wow. and economic. Wow. I mean, if you look at the entire first decade of Prophet, the Prophet Muhammad's preaching, because we actually, it, that preaching is the Quran, and we can, we can do the chronology of the Quran. So we can look at the first 10 years of revelations in the Quran. There's no theology there. It's all about 
care for the poor and the weak and the orphan and the the widowed, uh, that the very system that, that is in place right now is all about the exploitation of the people at the bottom. Look at Jesus. Jesus, it's funny that in the best case scenario, I told you this was my favorite topic, in the best case scenario, a modern Christian, I would hope, says that Jesus wants us to all be equal. That's a beautiful thought. But that's not what Jesus said at all. Jesus never preached equality. Jesus preached the reversal of the social order. Listen to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the hungry, for they shall be fed. Blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall uh, rejoice. Usually, we end there because no one wants to read what he says right afterwards. Because right afterwards, he says, Woe to the rich, for they have received their consolation. Woe to those who are fed, for they shall go hungry. Woe to those who rejoice, for they shall weep. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. This isn't a message of equality. This is a message of the reversal of the social order. Jesus is saying, The rich shall be poor, and the poor shall be rich. And you wonder why he was crucified for it. Same with the Buddha. Buddha's do you think in that, just to pick up on that, do you think that's a revolutionary message or do you think that that's a sort of uh, an inversion of values, a suggestion that what we value and what we consider to be riches will be inverted? That's a very, that's a very good point. I mean, it's a really good point. I mean, again, you're talking about a person who was the poorest of the poor. I mean, we always talk about Jesus is poor, but I don't think people understand what that actually means. Jesus was a tecton which for some strange reason we've translated as carpenter, like he's some middle-class businessman with an, <laughs> with an office, like building chairs and stuff, you know? Like that's, that's not what tecton means. Tecton means um, artisan or day laborer. Jesus was the Mexican standing outside of Home Depot. That's who Jesus was, waiting for someone to, to give him work. That's what he did. He went town to town looking for any kind of work. The Romans used the word tecton as a curse word. Um, so this is about as low as it gets. Wow. In each one of these cases, you have people who are trying to reform their own situation, not create a new one, people who are interested more in, in economics and social standing than in any kind of theology, and then finally, they all die. Yes, and when yes. they die, what they leave behind is a community that now has to make sense of what just happened, and what do they do? They institutionalize it. We always wonder why you know, the institution bears so little resemblance to the founder of that institution, why modern Christianity, if Jesus were alive today, he would have no idea what Christianity is. It would be completely foreign to him. And that's because one is is an attempt to institutionalize, you know, a, a, a prophet's thoughts. And when you do that, you you necessarily create this distance. So the perennial message, almost like the universal, we could argue, dare we, that the essential truth is comparable. And then the process and results by which they are uh, institutionalized and yeah, the results of that institution, institutionalization are also, also comparable. Also comparable. So, um, 
I think that doesn't that sort of, uh, in a sense, highlight the absurdity and also the likely motivation of the idea that uh, religion and politics have to be kept discreet and distinct? Yeah. Because if you were allowed religious and spiritual ideology to fuse politics, it would completely disrupt and overthrow the way that politics is currently, currently governed because economics, fairness, distribution of resources is fundamental, uh, you know, because I'm taking you at your word, to all three of those faiths yeah which is why governments and politics always tries to control religion right the idea that christianity and capitalism have married into a single ideology is grotesque i mean if you know jesus's yeah. entire argument was anti-capitalist right i mean that was the whole point and to think that nowadays we think, oh, well, these two things go hand in hand, right? They're like the same thing. Uh, is 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 anything? Is all you need to know about what we do with with religion? How religion is about control and institutionalization? Does that mean that there's no place for religion? Again, going back to what I was saying, religion is useful in that it helps us make sense of. It helps us formulate you know what is a, a fundamental part of hu the human condition but i always go back to what the buddha said right the buddha said if you want to strike water you don't dig six one-foot wells you dig one six-foot well islam is my six-foot well but because i just chose it that's why not because it's more right or because it's more correct or more true it's not it's because i want to get that water but what the Buddha meant, and I think this is the important thing, is that the water is the only thing that matters. And the water you're drinking is the water everybody's drinking. Mm. But pick a well. Mm. Hey, why is there always a sort of a mystical, esoteric sect within these broader faiths? And do they also have uh, comparable attributes? I'm talking of Sufism in particular, and I bet there's comparable ones in all major faiths. In fact, most scholars will tell you that uh, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist mystics have more in common with each other than either of them do with their fellow co-religionists. Because fundamentally what mystics have in common is this desire to break through the outer shell of religion, right? That for the vast majority of religious people, religion is about doctrine and dogma practice, do's, don'ts, right, wrong, morality. If you ask a Christian mystic or Jewish mystic, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist mystic, every one of them will tell you duality is an illusion, mm. that the path is irrelevant, it's the destination, that the do's and don'ts of morality are not cosmic phenomena. They're like human choices. They're, they're, you know, we're responsible for those things, not some external force forcing us to do good or bad. And then they'll always say this, that the fundamental goal of all of this is unity, unity with the divine, right? Some, some mystics, you know, like Sufis have, have literal words for it. Um, Hindus have words for for that for that notion. Um, in in uh, among the Sufis, it's fauna or annihilation. Annihilation oh, right. when like the the individual is annihilated when you are a drop in an ocean, right? But do you have personal experience of that? Yes. Do I? 
have I had that sustained no have I mm-hmm. have I come have I come to the ledge and and sort of tasted it like seen it just just ahead of me yes How? have I have I been annihilated no because i don't think it's, it's very difficult to do that as a sort of a householder or whatever like, but like how do you how what what have been your experiences your mystical transcendent experiences of annihilation or oneness unit divine unity i mean this is going to sound a little bit cheesy mm. but you know when i think about the birth of my children and i think about this sort of idea of it's like holy shit that's a part of me that's like literally a part of me coming out of my wife and the uh, you're you're just struck by this this concept of unity this idea that that all is one which by the way isn't just a theological principle it's Mm. a scientific principle right i mean we the the preservation of matter and energy is the foundation of all of this right the belief that what we are what what exists today has always existed and will always exist as long as the universe exists that's not some you know fancy schmancy theological mystical idea that's basic physics yes it's just you either believe that that unity of of reality is a a material thing or you believe there's something more to it and I believe there's something more to it. I've been thinking that the material plane is like a, a membrane and that there is some s- s- invisible force manifesting through it. That, that, that the oneness is the, the, true re- the true reality is the oneness. It's and the oneness. And then how do you define... The, the only question remains... Well, there's two questions, actually. Number one, how do you define that oneness? Does it, is, it a, is it a personality? Is it a, is it a thing that's knowable? And then the second way more important question, do you give a shit? You're right. Do you care? It's interesting. Do isn't you it? want to know it? There's, like I was to say, with the oneness, not two-ness, meaning that, that you know, like any form to sort of separate, any attempt to sort of separate it is uh, bogus. And then the, that not caring thing, I liked this uh, analysis by a, a, a Jungian scholar of William Blake's engravings from the book of Job. In one tableau, he depicts Yahweh and Job as the same individual in this tableau Yahweh shows Job look the behemoth and the leviathan that I created as I created thee and in the analysis for this he says that you know showing that sort of within the totality of all creation is mammalian because oh yeah the the leviathan this horrible thing under the Mm -hmm. way it's depicted by Blake is this horrible sea serpent that's a bit chilling more chilling still though I found the behemoth like a sort of a skinless hippo with its sinew revealed (laughs) you know dumb the energy of dumb fucking and appetite (laughs) and it made me feel like um, and and in the analysis that I I read he's saying that, that, that we need be good that good like or Job need be good that God is good the book's called An Encounter with mm. the Self that that the sort of the you know the, the beyond dualism like obviously relative terms such as good and evil have a little measurable value and therefore the imperative and the incentive for goodness kindness oneness to be somehow honoured this imperative is to create goodness itself like as if the you know no hands but thine is like that we are creating good because we are not assured of 
it's not as if it's a benevolent or loving God. Right. That it's a human action. It's a human decision. It's a human responsibility. Somehow. Yeah. This is what that. And I liked it. Why I like it is because it's young with that sort of the, the you know, comes via young, mm. young with the understanding of archety- archetypes, mm-hmm. uh, universalism, uh, symbolism. Blake, with his sort of intuitive genius, and then the book of Job with whatever mad archetypal powers in that and that the three of them like I know it's obviously a narrativization, but it was a story that sort of you know sometimes when you said that you taste the precipice you feel the fragrance yeah, of the holy yeah. sometimes that has an uncanny shadow like of like when you feel the eerie like fucking hell like uh, yes. with my early experiences and only really experiences of LSD the sort of sense of oh god this isn't real once the, there's a disruption in my the, the configuration of my identity chemically induced in this case it, it, it experiences Exposed me to a sort of sense of oh my god this is not actually real this is a mm-hmm. form of editorialization yeah. that's happening biochemically <laughs> and that, that there's a fear in that there is a dread there is the potential for real dread and um, that's I think perhaps why there is a need for some binding or structure or coordinates or map or whatever you want to see it as because of the potential the mad potential for appetites to lead us devour us destroy us and i feel that this is what's being played out and that the sort of the secular idea of progression or progressivism i would dispute in the uh, only in a sort of foucault kind of this some bullshit we're being sold here type way uh, because it feels to me that we are just concealing our appetites we're not being confronted by cruelty right. but we're becoming more and more materialist and the and our yearning our need this craving this holy need for divinity where it's being continually diverted into um, addiction consumerism it's like we're not there's or just dismissed as the product of an irrational mind well, we'll just we'll just uh, we'll excise that out of you. It's easy, mm. you know. It's not a real thing. It's not real, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. your imagination. Yes, like a side effect. And it's- yeah, and we'll just we'll just remove it, and everything will be will be fine. And I guess that's basically what what it all comes down to is that you don't remove something that is embedded in our cognitive processes. You figure out why it's there. Yes. Because it's there. It's not an accident. It exists. On that, we all agree. The question is, why? And on that, we don't have a fucking clue. So it's down to the individual. Yes. And who and for what reason says that we should ignore that impulse? Uh, Because what does that impulse lead to? First should be last, last should be first, hunger <laughs> yeah. should be fed. Right. No, you no, know no, what? no any that. of that That's stuff. not real. <laughs> yeah, none of that <laughs> is real. <laughs> but let's just leave it that the fed should be fed <laughs> and the hungry. They're hungry for a reason. Yes. It must be some moral, lazy. ethical failure. They're lazy. That's the problem. <laughs> Other than, you know, uh, Reza, I've like got to go because, uh, you know, this is taking place in uh, lunch break. I'm so grateful to you coming here and educate me so um, calmly and elegantly what a brilliant teacher you are thank this you this was wonderful thank you thanks for having me we got a lot into that hour we, we literally explained some corollary between the lives of those free <laughs> prophets and the subsequent institutionalization we I- implicit within it are whose objectives we are being answered, met we answered most of the questions of humanity they're mostly so. done now so can we just can we actually move on <laughs> some of progress fine <laughs> that can't be the last word that'll get owned by the neoliberals <laughs> Mm. Mm. 
Brilliant. We could, oh, well, thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Reza. Remember to let me know what you thought on Instagram. Tag me at True Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. Also, why don't you go back and listen to some previous episodes? Dear Khan, Tony Robbins, what a wonderful episode that was. You might want to listen to The Happy Pair. You might want to go way, way back in time and listen to Naomi Klein. You might want to listen to that man, Ken Ross, an anarchist. I mean, there's so much information available. And if that's not enough Russell Brand for you, go get my book, Mentors. It's available as an audio book. Or listen to Recovery to help yourself find a new spiritual perspective. Or go and watch Rebirth on Netflix. But mostly, you go and watch Sarah Marshall again. I play all the snow in that. Why don't you go and watch Big Brother's Big Mouth on YouTube? It's pretty funny. Uh, anyway, I love you. And uh, I'm really grateful that you were listening to this. And appreciate it if you spread the good holy word on my behalf. Thanks you. Thanks you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, old Russ. <laughs>